Everything takes 10 more times effort than you think it would be. So it takes 10 more effort. It's not gonna be, oh, I'm gonna sell this person, I do this, or I'm gonna do this. And like, it's gotta be like, okay, I'm gonna just do, I'm gonna do everything. And then I'm gonna have to hire two or three people behind them to verify that they're gonna do their job correctly. And just be relentless, be on top of it, be conscientious, prudence. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jonathan Tuttle. Today we're digging into mobile home parks and the mobile home park industry and how it has changed over the years. Jonathan started investing in this space in 2007, 2008 timeframe because he saw that there was a ton of opportunity but if you haven't been in the space that long, you might not know that things have really changed in mobile home parks in particular. They've changed in real estate in general, but mobile home parks have probably had the biggest transformation out of any of the real estate niches or sub niches out there. There's been a ton of appreciation, a ton of growth in the investor base, a lot of capital, capital rushing into the space. And today we're digging into his perspective on how things have changed. Some aspects have changed for the better. Some have been kind of neutral and some maybe have changed from the worst, again, depending on your perspective. But it's great to get his perspective on the show today, speaking with an investor who's been in mobile home parks for quite a long time now relative to the number of folks that are out there investing in mobile home parks. He has a much longer term view and a perspective that I think most people in mobile home parks today just don't have. So great to have him on the show. We get pretty deep into some of the details here and he speaks a little quickly just so you know so you might need to you know really pay attention to this one if you're dedicated to the mobile home park space you might need to listen to this one a couple of times to really get all of the juicy details but again if you're dedicated there's so much knowledge in here to grow in the mobile home park space and we get into where the opportunity is now, his perspective on the future of the mobile home park industry, and so much more. Great pleasure to have Jonathan on the show today. We had a great conversation, both recorded and our non-recorded portion. Honestly, you guys, the non-recorded part is one of my favorite parts of recording this show and producing a show for you because we get to build such great relationships with others. And that's really what real estate investing boils down to, is building relationships with others out there. So you're dedicated to the mobile home park space, listen to this interview, maybe listen to it a couple of times and then get out there and network with other investors. That is so key. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Jonathan Tuttle. We're digging into the long view of the mobile home park industry, both looking back and looking forward. So much knowledge in here. Let's go. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. We've had a great conversation so far, and I'm excited to share some of it with our listeners. For those out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about what you do, what you invest in, mobile home parks, everything around yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. It's a great podcast. I'm a long-time listener. Mobile home space since 2007, 8, in the early days, before the mass public got into it. Kind of like I used to tell my friends back in the day, and they'd be like, this is the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You gotta think, Facebook was barely even big back then. The internet, you know, YouTube was just came from basically a dating website to actually YouTube videos where we're familiar with nowadays. And we were in the recession. So we got our first part then and it did the best of all of our real estate. We, my dad was just for a little background. He was a contractor developer. So I've seen all different sides of commercial residential brokerage side. And when everything hit the fan in 2008 and you're a little bit older, you can remember this, or you could ask your parents, it was bad. It was really bad and real estate got the biggest, you know, hurt by this the most. And the only asset that did really well was mobile home parks. And I was like, okay, maybe I should be focusing on this because everything else went crazy. And then I did a little Googling research and then I'm like, okay, Sam's out. We just, I don't know, by the time you hear this, he's passed away, which is considered the greatest real estate investor of all time. He owns the most apartment buildings in the country, multifamily, owns the most office, prime New York. Oh, by the way. You know, it's the most mobile home parks and RV parks. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, why would he own this weird random asset class? But he's a billionaire and he's considered the greatest real estate investor of all time. So that kind of intrigued my background into it. And that's kind of how I first got started back way back then. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sam Zell, who recently passed away. I do have his book yep. on the shelf behind me if anybody hasn't checked it. that book out. <laughs> uh, Am I Being Too Subtle by Z Sam Zell. Great book. Definitely recommend that uh, you read it. I'd love to dig into... How the mobile home park industry has evolved, you know, in your experience since that time, because I'm not even in that space and I've seen mobile home park in investing change huge, massively in the last, you know, like six years, but you've got an even further, even longer uh, view of this than, than I have. So, you know, let's kind of take that, that long, long view and talk about how things have changed. Could you rewind the clock for us to right when you first got started in the industry and, and what it looked like at that time. Sure. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah, like you had outliers, it was more kind of just basically people that were very entrepreneur driven, the, the initial mobile home park owners, mom and pop still to this day, but it's vastly changing as you alluded to. And back at that time, it was just like of like a local farmer or somebody like a local entrepreneur that said, Hey, I have some, a lot here. I have some land and I want to develop it. Oh, by the way, I'll grandfather, I get some grandfather laws in usually in secondary tissue markets and I could put some mobile homes on here and get some cash flow. They're just kind of be entrepreneur driven owners, especially if you go to like Florida, if you go to Florida, you'll see like a lot of these lots are really small. They don't have like the setbacks like that would normally pass code today. And so there's approximately 43,000 change parks and. It was kind of this obviously and still unique niche, but like it was even weirder then because like mass people like, you know, you see the movie like Eight Mile and stuff like that. It was always portrayed in the cops TV show way back in the day. If you're a little bit older, it'd be like they'd always have somebody like running through a mobile home park. Like it was like the stigma of the industry, and so a lot of people outside the industry are like, oh, it's a mobile home park, and there's all there's different like just like anything. There's there's tier there's levels different things. There's high quality senior parks. If you're in affluent areas, they have like in, in Malibu, the, the, some mobile homes go four to $6 million. They're like $4 million a mobile home. And the Matt McConaughey, Pamela Anderson live there. You're right in the same beach and the house next door are 40 million, hundred million dollars, but they're $4 million. So it's a bargain, same beach. And same with the Hamptons. You have the, the Hampton mobile home park where it's like the billionaire hangout. And you guys, the, the New York, you can Google these articles. It's crazy. Like, so some people in the Hamptons, the billionaires literally have a mobile home park that they live in is <laughs> like a, like a weekend getaway, like a beach 
you know, Beach Five, and it's like a one and a half million dollar, three million dollar mobile home. And you know, obviously the billionaires don't care, but on the beach. And so there's different tiers to, to the mobile home park industry. And so the, the stigma mostly has been always what you see on TV, many videos, music, anything that's always kind of portrayed in you know Netflix show, Trailer Park Boys, things of that nature. But if you actually look at the background of it, well, the end of the whole goal of it is to serve affordable housing and have the best, cheapest form of affordable housing. That's the whole premise behind it. And once you understand that dynamic, then you can understand that investment dynamic behind it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you gave us the the whole swath of what the industry looks like. It's not just trailer park boys level quality there, right. but it is ultimately affordable housing and kind of the the most affordable housing option that is available pretty much anywhere that that it is found. So I've noticed being an outsider to mobile home parks within the last few years, and this is common across all real estate, but especially mobile home parks, seems to have had the biggest cap rate compression, meaning that prices have gone up the most compared to other types of real estate even, and a lot of newbie entrants. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. Newbies are always getting in. But it seems like mobile home parks have had like a really big like groundswell of folks rushing in because they hear how great of a deal it is. Are you seeing any like deleterious impacts of that? Any you know deals falling apart? What's your perspective on that? Oh, I love it. You know your stuff here. That's a great attention. question because there's a couple a couple of components that. So back in the day, Frank and Dave, they actually in the mobile home park store. I have a mobile park course, mobile wealth academy, but. They actually bought the course from some old school guys, original OGs back in the 2005. So like when we first got our first part, we had like, and literally I still have it. So I'm like DVD, throwing your computer with like a book, but how to get your first mobile home park. They acquired that and that kind of like, and then they started kind of getting the industry out there. And the biggest catalyst to your point, and you saw that you keep alluded to the last five or six years, the biggest reason why. Besides the internet is in 2015, 16, I remember going to the shows, the mobile home shows across the country. It was when Fannie and Freddie got into the game. So he traditionally, which I should have mentioned last call, before that, it always be local bank financing. Local bank financing is like kind of like seeing a family game. And so if you're in commercial real estate, you're in industrial, you're in retail, you're in multifamily, you're used to getting on recourse, you're getting into more advantageous, better rates, better terms, longer amortization, things of that nature. And then in 2015, 2016 came in, Fannie and Freddie's like, well, we want to solve affordable housing. So in the last few years, it's called the Duty to Serve Act. And you can Google, Google this. So it's affordable housing, farmland, and they get the lowest rates, non-recourse, and the best terms, and the best amortization of all real estate. The government wants to p- provide affordable housing. It's not sectional per se. It's just saying, hey, we, you're going to do the loan, but we're going to give you like the, what traditional commercial real estate asset class, but a little bit better because we like the rate. We see the numbers, we see how, like, how resilient this asset class is to people. And so that's what we want to invest in going forward. And that's what really changed the game. And that's what brought into the, the Apollo groups and brought in the sovereign wealth funds. All these people are like their traditional, like would buy multifamily assets components. We're so used to getting these, those type of terms in multifamily, bigger asset classes. And they're like, Hey, we're going to put this. And then, then they see, Oh, Sam's all, and Oh, by the way, Warren Buffett and at the time, Warren Buffett has been, was the richest person in the world because he had two different companies. He had Clayton Homes, which builds about 50,000 homes out of the 100,000 mobile homes per year for the last 10 years, builds about half of them. And he also finances them with Century 21st Mortgage. 
And so being vertically integrated, Warren Buffett's obviously a brilliant old school guy. Like he doesn't tech, it's not his own, but he understands how to like get traditional businesses and get resilient businesses that do well during, you know, people are drink Coca-Cola, they're going to get a house and they're going to get, there's tough transported through real cars. He understands businesses that will be there no matter what, even if technology and blockchain, everything changes stuff. And so. Mobile home park industry is super resilient. And then the, the catalyst behind that was them Fannie and Freddie getting into the game because everything back before that was all just not good loans. Like you'd have to go to the local bank and then the local bank, obviously it's five years, like just, and nothing about it means the rates are always one and a half basis points higher. Like and it was recourse. It was just nothing. Even if they had 30 years in that, in the previous owner and he paid it off and you take it over and they wanted to keep it, you still didn't get those good loans. And so the biggest catalyst was that. And then to your other second point is, yeah, because people have been sounding like people like me have been advocating this stuff and they're like, oh, cool. Like this sounds great, but it's a very scarce in supply and demand economics. And people like me have deal flow. I have all the relationship with the brokers. I have all the relationship. Like I have 10, 15 years on you and people, every person in the industry. So you come to space, it's kind of like going to a space that you've never gone to. It's like you're going to the space and going competing with somebody that doesn't have this, you don't have the same experience. And so it's going to be super competitive and you're going to get the stuff you can get sold or told it by, it's going to be probably not good asset classes. And there is some definitely not good asset classes. It can be stuff that doesn't have good, you just you have like, you're going to have a sewage waste plant system in the park. You're going to have a town that does not want you there. You're going to have <laughs> like a declining economy. You're going to have different factors in your due diligence. If you're not sophisticated, because you think, oh, it's just automatic because it's a mobile home park. No, there's all these bad asset classes or assets. And if you get a decent run mobile home park, yes, you'll do really well. But there's going to be people that are going to sell you something on it and they're going to sell you like, oh, they're going to hook, like I'll hook you up this and that. And then people come in the space because like, oh, mobile home parks are going to guarantee make money. No, there's nothing's guaranteed in life. And if they're reaching out to you, it's mainly because everyone else has passed on the deal. Yeah, absolutely. So the entrenched relationships are very important, getting those relationships built up. Now, the big institutional money coming into this space, you would think that along with that, they would bring the ability to to maybe get some local laws and zoning change, right? Money, money talks, money gets things done. And you would you would hope right that that would maybe lead to an increase in supply but it looks to me like we're seeing the opposite declining supply of mobile home parks is that is that true is it on the downward trend are we say staying flat are we trending upward just a little bit what do you see in terms of overall supply yeah and here's the here's the context behind it it's a great question yeah we have the co-star you know everyone knows a co-star if you're in brokerage or if you're looking to acquire a commercial estate asset class well they always call mobile home park owners and mobile home park owners traditionally have been people that like hey it's family run business think of like when billionaires or when forbes reach out to billionaires even though they're not average mobile home parks not a billionaire but per se they don't respond back and so like co-star and the data has always been not after it because they're like, they want to keep it low key. They want to keep this like kind of like a secret gold, gold mine in the background. Okay. They don't want any more challenges. They don't want in like, a, that's another thing because when you change, when you sell the park, the towns are always like mind blown. Like, oh, that park is worth that much. <laughs> and then, cause they've, you know, the average park has been from people that originally had it from six, they built it from the 60s, 70s and 80s. And they've had it 20, 30, 40, well, 30, 40, 50 years. 
And the first time I traded hands, now they have a tax basis based on the new hands changing over. And they're like, oh, that was a trailer part. <laughs> that thing is worth $10 million. We thought it was worth like a four or thousand. Like that's their mindset, these small towns. And going to your point, is it all uh, correlates to that. So many small mom and pop owners have to deal with, even if they're buying a new park, it's like the new, when they see the trade, the park trades and the, the town, local town's like, oh, well, now we're, we don't, you, we want to have like these crazy high taxes or we don't, they don't, they're not, they're not working with you as much. And then going to your point of like, even if you're a local, like you live an hour away or two hours away from the parks, like there's like, there's, it's a lot of political stuff in these small towns or secretary markets. And then you become like one of the most valuable yeah. assets. Like you do the apartment building, car dealerships, like the like retail, the targets, the Walmarts in the area. And you're competing with that, but they have institutional money. And then, so the institutional money, the biggest issue you have is they're mostly going to go for a bigger park. So you could roll up, just like if you're doing an like SPV and you're like doing a business acquisition, you get the 2 million EBITDA, you get the 7, 10X multiple off, you're in familiar business aspect, you know, sales, eminent version acquisition, same kind of component. Private equity wants to go inquire mobile home parks when they head to a certain point. They have to be 15, 20 million above or multi-parks because they're not going to fly their jet out there for a two, you know, two, three million dollar park. It's they're spending more gas, money, time, effort, energy, resources. It's not worth it. And so they go for parks in more top tier markets. But remember, mobile home parks are not in downtown major cities. And there's a few, I know I've seen some deals like randomly, like in like Denver, it was like crazy. I just saw a deal come across my plate. I was like, this is mobile home park, but it was like just barely. And then right before that, it part of Denver, like blew up. I'm like, that is as close as you're going to get to a downtown market. You're not going to see one in LA or New York, like <laughs> right in the outskirts, even Chicago. Like they're at least far enough away. But, and this one in Denver, Denver was like literally like you'd see the skyline in the background, but that's very rare. So private equity doesn't have that pool because you're dealing with more secondary tertiary markets where most of them are. And so even if it's a high end park, it's, it's more, it's not up, it's out. And so. The markets where you see where private equity gets a little pull is going to be like Florida and California, where like the land and the biggest issue with land in California is they have the rent control in certain areas. And it's, and it's very, depending on market, but you like the ones that going back to alluding back to what I said before with the Malibu one, I think it was like three or 3,000 a month, 3,500 a month I heard for a lot rent, but the homes are like one and a half to like $6 million. And some of them were like super modern, like they didn't look like mobile homes. It's like it's, you know, California is different. So it's, it's very modern. Think of like very trendy. And there was this article on Wall Street Journal Forbes, Rob Report, like, look at these homes. And they were like, it's just like a trendy home, basically. It's like a, you know, modern shell in the background. Like that's the new mobile homes or they're going towards. But then the taxes where they save all the money. And here's the thing. So people aren't familiar with this industry. So like, people are like, oh, they see that private equity going back to private equity. They're taking over this, taking over, taking over. Where else can you live in America? For example, in Illinois, in our parks, in two of our parks, the average tenant spends 10 bucks a month in real estate taxes. $10. That's nothing. $10. Across the street, <laughs> they're going to pay $350 bucks a month for a $100,000 house. So their entire year and their lot rents basically less than the taxes. And that's the thing. And then that's the thing people aren't realizing. The same school, same fire, same police. And so that's the biggest hiccup with the going back to private equity is like the city is like the... They don't know how to price the homes and that's the biggest component and the zoning stipulations. And so in every state and every city is different and markets different, tissue and secondary markets usually more favorable, but 
the biggest thing is the cities don't get the tax basis from it. And so even if private equity comes in, they look down more on bigger investors. And so it's kind of better to use like a smaller investor, just kind of pro tip, like a local person to kind of maybe put them in SPV or something like that. This is really high level into kind of like in put in like a shell company, which is owned by a trust and <laughs> has multi tiers at the local unsophisticated family, not family, but the local legal team, like course system, they're not going to be like, oh, there's a shell company to own. There's LLC that's in Delaware that we can't reach and, and has a trust behind it. And in South Dakota, oh, we can't figure this out. And so then they won't come after you as much. But the biggest thing is it comes down to go back to the private equity component. It's they don't have a little pull because it's affordable housing becomes kind of this weird talking point where people get kind of offended. But then same day, like we mentioned, like the average rent is 450 not sitting here squeezing people out of life savings. You can work at McDonald's and pay your bills and then you have, and or the 50% of the tenants are senior citizens and their social security goes up with inflation, went up 7.2, I think, percent social security index, whatever it's called. But so if you raise a lot, rents 20 bucks and they're getting not $200 a month, they're not going to be really that mad because they're getting, you know, the lowest taxes, same benefits, and they're saving a thousand dollars a month. Or two thousand dollars a month. So the 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 supposed priority of a lot of these municipalities to promote affordable housing is, if I'm summing this up correctly, is at odds with the financial yeah. reality that the tax basis out of a mobile home park and in the example that you gave might be ten bucks a month compared to if they let's just you know raise this whole thing and zone it single family. Well, we're going to multiply our tax base by maybe 30 or 40 times just by that one step. Yeah, it's going to be less less affordable housing, significantly less affordable, probably less dense, but it's going to bring in more tax dollars, which is really yeah. where the rubber meets the road for the municipalities. Yeah, so that's kind of like the it's kind of like where the country is like people are like half and right, left and right or in between and it's kind of like the whole premise behind it and like you have talking points for both sides, but at the end of the day, this is the affordable housing. And if you're an honest owner that like, takes care of the clients and tenants and like you're just passionate about just providing affordable housing, like people will want, like we drive through our parks and people will wave at us because they know like where else can I live for $400, especially if the 50% of seniors, if you have to go to assisted living center, how much is that? Five, oh, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 a month? Yeah. And you have a nice flower bed, you power, we power wash the units for free for some of our seniors and stuff like that. And we beautify the flowers and or the entryway. And then we also have like, usually a pro tip if you own a park, is you find like a former military or former police person and say, hey, like you can kind of be like the unofficial watch job in the neighborhood or kind of keep a, keep an eye out, but it keeps rules and regulations. And they kind of walk around, they like claim it, like, oh, this has, they kind of look and like, but keeping rules and regulations, but it also provides a better quality of living for everyone else in the park because they know that there's people, you know, passionate about the community. And that's what it really comes down to. And the biggest thing, well, which goes back to what I initially said is like, sometimes people, like the people that have owned this for like 70 years old, you know, that originally developed these and the son's kids are like, I'm going to live in Miami. I'm going to live in Vegas and LA. I don't really care where well, my dad's going to sell it and I have a $3 million, $5 million. Like, I don't really want to live in control of the mobile home park anymore. I want to live in, I want to be, <laughs> you know, at the Beverly Center every watching some Lakers games. I want to be in like, you know, Brickell, Miami. And so. They're hands off. And then so the, the biggest thing is finding the next transition to the parks. 
for quality park owners to keep the legacy for the people that initially experienced it and can keep the improvements. And then, so that's the biggest where we're at right now in the kind of like the perception, psychology perception of people in the public, like, oh, like, and then it's like, are you going to be a private equity buyer or are you going to be like a mom and pop buyer? And then like, if you're a private equity buyer, it goes in the news, like, oh, private equity is buying billions and billions and sovereign wealth funds to buy mobile home parks. Like you look down upon like from both sides of it. Cause I have a fund and then most of them personal <laughs> mom and pop owners. So I'm like, why do you want to flip frame me as like, and like, but someday I don't, I don't have a Manhattan office and buying $10 billion in real estate. I'm just a mom and pop owner keeping the legacy of the, of the parks keeping the quality community and actually improving upon it and actually being boots on the ground to provide that. And then eventually, you know, hand off to somebody else. And that's kind of my premise behind that. And that's, you know, my passion behind the industry. And then when I'm hit like 67 years old, yeah, I'm going to be completely out of the game at that point. hundred percent. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. So this, this might be a very big topic to get uh, to here toward the end of the show. But before we hit record, you were telling me that you think there's a kind of a limited time frame on a limited amount of time to really get into the industry due to the consolidation yep. and everything. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, it's actually a question. So as I've been like I said, in the space since 2007, then I got in the last few years while well, I was two different C-suite executives. I've also got offers from different funds besides my fund to be like, you know, limited or actual partner in the, the fund. And what I've learned is it's, it comes down to supply and demand economics. It goes back to the, am I being too subtle on Sam Zell? Like he says, 43,000 plus parts. It's really hard to develop new ones. And it's usually the ones that are new developed are literally like, I know this one's from Seattle and Texas, or it's uh, Washington and Texas are two of the states I know they've been focusing on it because they want, but it's like retirement communities, small mini home communities, but it's like, you're literally developing a subdivision. So you're not buying a cash flowing asset. You have to develop, you have to market. If you do the infrastructure, everything else, you're not going to be profitable for two or three years. A different business model than just buying a, acquiring a park that's cash flowing. You know the numbers, you have the 30, 40, 50 years of history. And you could say, hey, I could repair some units or I could, you know, raise rents or I could do operational efficiency, systems process, basic business principles. But so that's what you're competing with. And so the new people come in the space, it's, it's making super competitive. It's, I, I think going, it's, the people have like people like me in the Venice space have the relationships. And so we have a four or five year run to acquire because like, for example, here's a good, here's a good analogy. So self-storage, a lot of people love self-storage and there's about 200, I've heard of 190, 200,000 plus self-storage units. And I, ideally you want between 40 and 80,000 square feet in an urban environment. You want to have like a 19 foot ceiling. You want air conditioning units. You want close proximity to apartment buildings, things of that nature. Like, but you can always open a new self-storage and I have a couple of friends that own like close to billions of dollars of, well, right around billions of dollars of self-storage. So they give me all the insights. And even one fund, they wanted me to bring this mobile home park side to the self-storage fund. But, but mobile home parks are 43,000. So we're one fifth. And so right now, and then if you talk to the people in the self-storage space, they've been in for, we're basically seven, eight years behind self-storage in terms of basically private equity acquiring it. And it's going to be seeing more and more there's no, like it goes back to my saying co-star, but we're probably 65, 7% still mom and pop operated. And so, but in five or seven years, four years, maybe it's going to probably drop down, you know, 30, 40% and whatever it comes down to. But we're basically like how self-storage was in 2012, 13, obviously we're in 2023 now. So it's consolidation, consolidation. So the opportunities are going to be, if you're going to the larger deals, you're competing with Wall Street, Apollo, Blackstone, the big players billionaires 
the small ones, it's going to be a lot of tire kickers. And anybody's been real estate, we know those tire kickers in the one half million to one and a half million dollar space. And maybe you can scoop up some deals here and there and you're trying to get some no money down parks because you're dealing with mom and pops 65% of the time. And then the in-between range between, let's say, four to 15 million, that's going to be all consolidated. Right now, we have a, obviously a little reprieve because the interest rates gone down. We had like a major boom the last two years because the interest rates and the cap rates that you mentioned in the beginning compressed. And we were getting like even offers our parts. We we're like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even thought this would be possible. But like, and so people coming into space. And so there could be people coming into space that don't like understand underwriting and they're just like, hey, I acquire this. But we had the most compression of all real estate, like you mentioned. Like it was. And always historically, as mobile home parks were this complete anomaly, it was like the best cap rates, the highest cap rates, which means usually the most risk, but we were actually the lowest risk given the highest cash flow and the best tax benefits, which I didn't men- mention with the um, cost segregation analysis, we get 15-year depreciation, mostly about 65 to 70% of the acquire park, and multifamily is 27.5. So we had all these different things that it were just kind of weird, like, oh, you, like land improvements, like... I put ads up on Facebook and people are like, oh, you can't get land improvement discounts. I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> I'm like, land improvement discounts from mobile home parks are 15 years. And then a couple people, you know, how people come comment like, he's actually right. <laughs> and so we instead of 27.5 at 15 years appreciation, plus the home, mobile homes, if you own the mobile homes, they'd be 27.5. But if you had certain parts in the mobile homes, you could depreciate them if you want to get really technical. But so we had so many analogies that they're oxymorons, like the highest cash flow. With the highest cap rate, which is complete opposite of normal, <laughs> with the best safety. And so, going to your point, it's, it's getting super compressed. We have a four or five year run. And then after that, it's going to be more, I, the mobile homes flipping game is always going to be good because that's a very niche. And then the finding deals in the probably a few million to like 10 million range is going to be the next opportunity. But we have a four or five year run before, just because we're in the internet age, people see information. I'm talking about it. You're listening. You know about it. And people are going to acquire and they're going to outbid and it's going to make it more competitive. But people that have relationships, we have a four or five year run to really acquire parks. And then after that, it's going to be more like kind of self-storage what is today. And that's my, my viewpoint on it. Just being in the space for a while. Awesome. Wow. So much great information right now. We're going to take a quick break Man. for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Jonathan, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm right. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? And that when you said that, you know, that was, mm. this is a good question because education, I've always been super adamant and like I've bought so many courses. I've always hired mentors and like that's obviously number one. I think listen to podcasts like this. Pro tip too. Like I always tell people I do cardio every day, or at least four days a week, five days a week. I was trying to say lean, but 
they want a podcast. Like, yeah, if you listen to music, but they want a podcast. And I don't encourage people listening at two, two, one and a half, two speed. I see people saying that, but like, listen to podcasts. You're always, and like we mentioned before, the, you got live here. I'm like, I fall asleep to business. Like I throw on like a YouTube video or something like that. So the podcast, YouTube video is more kind of like more generic. So that's why I don't, I don't have to like think about it as much. That's why I fall asleep to it. But like a podcast, I want to be, because when you're actively moving, you're actually retaining more. They have science behind this. Like your brain and being engaged, you're retaining it more. So listen to podcasts. But I know we're not talking about like uh ed- education component. I think the, I think the biggest thing that I think would help the most people is and this thing I still struggle with, but like I automatic, cause I score really high on the dark, tri- uh, low on the dark triad score. So like Machiavellianism, like uh psychopathy, like really <laughs> like a crawly person. And I also score very high on the wonder lake, which is like committed to work and education, things of that nature as reading people. I think that, I think that's the biggest, and that's like, it's me so frustrated. Cause I'm like, if like, cause I do so much like with somebody, here's a big tip. So like when people, like if you ask me to introduce you to somebody, I'm like, you know what? I don't care if you guys do business, whatever, but like, I like his, he's smart. He's intelligent. He knows this, he's background. I think you, this, if you weren't two people, you should be in talking to, and they're looking to talk to him. Being more generous of just lining up people authentically and like whatever happens, happens. But at least you both serve each other. And I think so many people fail to do this. And like, I think an example, like I had a guy I met at a conference, a family office conference. And I have a called the Credit Investor Podcast. And then the Forbes Middle East, the editor listens to my podcast. And then the guy that I met is has a, a luxury car company, like a supercar company. And I was much, I was doing a, just a conversation with him. He's like, oh, I'm going to be in the Middle East this next month. And it was in, in Saudi Arabia. I was like, oh, let me do the introduction to them. And then it ends up like, long story short, like they all know so many different people. And it was like kind of a casual thing, but I just kind of did an email introduction, but most people won't do that. Like, I'm just like, Hey, like he listens to my podcast. I know him personally and they're both, he's going to be over there. And then he's looking like, join the conference. Let me introduce some of this person that'd be a, somebody could be a potential speaker. And most people don't think like that. It was like, always give value first. Think of how you can align your friends. Like so many people, you know, so many small entrepreneurs introduce them to somebody else like it goes so much more farther like their podcast comment on their on the apple podcast that gives so much more to entrepreneur and it gives so much energy and value to the world i think that's the biggest thing i I could say as a tip for just to make the world better place so you'd say investing in relationships and and connecting others and connecting others and but doing it like authentically and generously but so many people would they won't even like They'll do it for a celebrity, but they won't do it for you. And then the celebrity, you're talking to a celebrity, like, oh, you're like, no, you didn't even listen. Like, you didn't even do anything for me. And I've always done, I've been introduced to three different people. And so, like, always being authentic and authentic people will align with authentic people, but just giving back to people. I think that's number one. I think so many people fail to do this. They did, they're just so focused on solving their problems, but just like, hey, how can I help somebody else, introduce somebody else and add value? Nice. So we had question number one. Now we go to question number two, the other side of that coin. What is the worst investment you ever made? Kind of. <laughs> I bought in 2006. And the thing was, that's when I, we first got into mobile home park experience, but I was like, oh, I'm going to get a condo. And it was like the second best or best city in America, Naperville, I think. It was. And I was like, oh, it's guaranteeing I make money. I like bought peak of the market. And like, I was like, man, like, and then I looked at you know, Miami. He was moving to Miami fall early next year. And. Miami the last nine years, like, like, even if you're in Brickell, like the, you know, prime, not even Winwood, like Brickell, prime, like prime buildings, like beautiful luxury. 
they've only appreciated barely like it's very insignificant but if you actually buy like a single family and you know different areas have gone up a lot but it was like condos and then you have the hoas that keep going up so i would say stay away from that i remember kind of like when grant cardano always preaches like you know he just bought his new like 40 30 40 million dollar <laughs> property from tommy and at least bought two he bought one in malibu and he bought the one 30 million dollar house from 25 30 million from tommy Hilfiger in miami beach or right on there he is by single family that's he had a luxury apartment he's like rent cash flow your cash flow for your commercial real estate pay for your rent and people are like oh you're renting well yeah i'm getting tax benefits and all the depreciation and i'm getting everything covered from my commercial real estate asset so i don't care if my partner appreciates five percent in the next five years and i have to pay a broker five percent to sell it cool yeah i once made money on a condo and i'm never going to try that again i got i feel yeah like no i'm never <laughs> absolutely not well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I think it goes back to what I was mentioning before, just reading people and just adding value to people and just continue to learn and educate. And I don't know, here's a, actually a good point. Change up. Everything takes 10 more times effort than you think it would be. It's going to take 10 more effort. It's not going to be, oh, I just saw this person, I do this, or I must do this. And like, it's got to be like, okay, I'm going to just do, I'm going to, everything and then i'm not to hire two or three people behind them to verify that they're going to do their job correctly and just be relentless be on top of it be conscientious prudence and just you know and then when you find good people just reward them and those people like most people i've had friends for 20 some years and like i'm the person that I'll always responds to their calls their text message within the day with not sooner even as busy as I am. And so just giving back to people and think of people, put people first. A lot of people are so focused on themselves, put people first. And I think that's my biggest takeaway for people is put people first and eventually, yeah, don't expect anything back, but it comes back to you and just putting good out in the world. And like if more people do that, I do a lot of different charity boards for a long time, which I didn't get a lot of, and I do a lot of stuff for dogs, even homeless dogs. And I don't put that out there, but like, if you follow me, you see that I've done that stuff, but it's just a way to put good energy out there and put people first and put dogs first for me <laughs> as well. Cause they always, they're relentless in giving out affection, expecting nothing back. I love that. I, I support animal shelters as well. It's very important uh, to me and I'd love to grow and make more money and just do more of that is, is a big goal of mine. Yep. But anyway, Jonathan, well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge, all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, if they want to find your podcast, anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. That was a great, you're very knowledgeable and I excited to be on here. A couple things. So mobile home, if you're looking to flip mobile homes, I have the Mobile Home Wealth Academy on how to get your first park. 33 hours, I even have capital raising, wealth protection, trust, estate planning. Like the average mobile home car course is four to, eight hour, four to eight hours. I'm 33. I just like to go over a board and that's what I do. Midwest Park Capital, it's more for Higher tier. So I'm getting different family offices looking to do, take it down the next fund just within three or four, but 250 minimum, Midwest Park Capital. If anybody's in the blockchain space, I have a new raise. We have a billionaire investor in our last round and we're doing a new round. So V3 blockchain and, or if you want to listen to my podcast, it's a credit investor podcast or follow me at Jonathan Tuttle. I don't use much social anymore because I don't get much value on it. <laughs> I like, I got 50 pages literally from different accounts. I have multifamily investor nationwide on Facebook and that's like 20 some thousand followers. But most of the time it's, I don't get much off social media. I think I put more effort in putting content that's high quality for social media to get very low return. 
So just, you know, follow and connect with me on those three websites. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see you engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.